Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Captain and the Keeper Old Time Vintage Hockey Radio Program Podcast. As always, I'm your venerable host, the Captain, and with me is the Keeper. Keeper, what's on your mind today? Well, first, I want to thank all of our radio listeners for following us to our podcast. We really appreciate your loyalty and your listenership. And I guess what's on my mind today is we're nearing July 1st, which... Oh, it's yeah. one of the most exciting dates on the hockey calendar. And this year, we do not get July 1st. I think the date now might be November 1st from some reports I read. It's going to be a little different. It's going to be very different. But one of the greatest times of year to be a hockey fan is the summer, because that's when you get all your free agent signings, unrestricted free agents, restricted free agents, offer sheets, you name it. So I think in that in that light, maybe we should talk a little bit about some of our favorite free agent signings. Whether they're right. summer or any other time of year in the National Hockey League. So Sounds that was what good. I was this, thinking about. This will be an interesting summer. Obviously, uh, we should be gearing up for some free agent signings right now. And depending on which team you root for, that's either a good time of year or a bad time of year. Looking at you, Islander fans. Sorry, guys. Uh, unfortunately, some teams have better luck than others. So, yeah, let's let's take a look. Let, let's do a, a little top three here. Your favorite uh could be the best, could be the worst. Uh, let's do a, a top three, your favorite and your least favorite. Could be statistics, could be something you like, a player that uh, is near and dear to your heart, could be somebody who helped a team win a Stanley Cup. Uh, let's go three each. Fire them off. We'll talk a little bit about them, and uh, we'll leave it out there. What do you got? Who's your number one, or give me one of your top three. It's really hard to choose, so I, I have a whole uh, bunch of names that are memorable, terrible, you name it. But I think for me, the date of this signing is significant, July 28th, 1997. It is not a July 1st signing because back in the 90s, the July 1st signings didn't always happen. They sort of stretched into August. And July 28th, 1997, Mark Messier signed with the Vancouver Canucks. This is memorable on many levels for me because that whole summer to that point, it was a will he sign with the Rangers again? Will he not sign? Part of me was excited to see him go, and I don't know why I say that, but I was. (laughs) And when he did, it was to a team that just unveiled new uniforms. There's that famous image of him holding some new uniforms. His the famous image of him holding up uh, the two arms in the air when he put the jersey on. He's got the new Canucks blue, red, and silver colors with the Orca logo. But for me, obviously. In hindsight, I think every person will agree that the old Canucks skate logo is far superior to the Orca whale. But, you know, that's just me. It definitely is. But I was excited to see that jersey and to see what he would look like wearing it. I was excited to see what the reaction would be when he came back to Madison Square Garden. I got that game on VHS, November 25th, 1997. Uh, Yeah, memorable game for sure. Interesting time, too, with the Rangers coming off of being a competitive team that felt like they maybe had another shot after that 97 run. Uh, all of a sudden, a key piece of that team is gone. They lose Messier. That that was an interesting time. And the Messier contract, which was recently released, they've released a, a handwritten contract. What his 97-98 contract would look like. And there were some uh, pretty cool pieces to that. He was guaranteed number 11, which had sort of been retired uh, to Wayne Mackey, who had suffered an injury. And he, he had a no-trade clause. Uh, not in his contract, but he would eventually take the captaincy from Trevor Linden, which is kind of interesting because the, the Rangers and Canucks had that 94 Cup series with oh, each sure. other three years earlier. 
bitter rivals there. And those were the two captains of the team. So I don't know how he was welcomed into the Canucks locker room, but uh, he got, also had a $3 million loan from the Canucks, which I found interesting. If you read through the the uh, part of his contract where he got a loan, I don't know how that this was This is all possible. in the, the handwritten contract. Yeah, this is all in the handwritten <laughs> contract. Fun. And of course, he uh, was bought out afterwards, and that's in his contract too. Um, and he lived in he lived in Washington State. That was interesting. He didn't yeah, live in Vancouver. The Moose living out in Washington State. Interesting. So I, for me, that was the the the, the most memorable signing as a, a kid at the time, to see like the well, biggest star of your team leave, and go to to me that was a rival, Vancouver Canucks, only because of the Stanley Cup series three years earlier. I'm glad you bring this up because the Messier signing obviously was memorable to everybody. I, I think at the time that, that was a, a big time player going, you know, from the Edmonton days onto the Rangers, going to Vancouver, trying to get them to get that missing ingredient that they felt they uh, were lacking when they played the Rangers. And that's exactly why this contract, uh, the Messier signing also ends up on my list. Although it's going to occupy a slightly different place, the Messier signing for me is in my three worst contract signings. Uh, And I think most people, I think I can speak for just about everyone on this one, and that they will agree with me, uh, which is that the Messier signing was a disaster for Vancouver. And, And now I understand at the time you were excited and a lot of people, you know, it was a big deal. But now we get to look back and looking back, uh, this contract was just a disaster. You you mentioned some of the things already. Uh, Trevor Linden uh, voluntarily, I believe, was the term, giving up the captaincy. Oh, sure. Uh, but then, then accidentally got traded shortly thereafter <laughs> to the New York Islanders. Uh, that's a little bit of a, a coincidence. I, I wouldn't say a conspiracy, but certainly a coincidence. So Messier gets the number 11 back. You touched on that already. Uh, they already had it sort of unofficially retired. He takes it back. Uh, Messier reunites then with Mike Keenan. Interesting formula. You'd think that that right there would be something uh, – you know, uh, that maybe lightning in a bottle type thing. Maybe they can capture it back again. Uh, unfortunately, uh, didn't go so well. Messier, I, I think he only scored more than 20 goals one of the three seasons he was out there. Uh, he never had more than 60 points in a season. So that's not exactly what you're looking for in a big-time player, a guy of Messier's caliber. Uh, you know, obviously he was starting to get a little bit older at that point, but he was double digits in the minus category all three seasons. Not that I, you know, always – place too much stock in the minus category. I finished as a lifetime negative 375. So, you know, I don't really think there's a lot to weigh on that, but overall 25 post hit. <laughs> well, uh, well, I wouldn't worry about those particulars, but you know, the point is uh, Messier is one of the greatest players, one of the greatest captains in NHL history, but it just didn't click. It didn't work with Vancouver. Uh, the fans didn't accept him. That point in his career, things weren't really working out. He goes back and re-signs with the Rangers. Didn't have any playoff success, but I think that was just a better fit for him personally and for those two, uh, for for the organization and whatnot. So I I think that things started well for Messier in Vancouver, but didn't pan out. So uh, let's hear one of your negatives now. Who do you've got? That's that's one of my top three worst. Who's one of your worst signings? Oh, boy, one of the worst. And I hate to go back to – well, you know what? I won't go to the Ranger train here, but I'll go to one that's a little more recent. And this one is in 2008. And I'd, it, not necessarily like the worst it, that he performed the worst, but it would have to be newly inducted Hall of Fame uh, player Marion Hosa. Marion Hosa in 2008 signs with the Detroit Red Wings. Now, 
the year prior in 07-08, he was dealt to Pittsburgh as they made their cup run to the finals of 08, where they faced off against the Red Wings. So they lose the Awkward. Penguins and the, uh, the, the Red Wings win the Stanley Cup. And he figures maybe I have a better shot at w- winning the cup with the Red Wings. So he signs with the Wings. Makes sense. Yikes. Plays the whole 08-09 season with the Wings. And they make it to the finals. Great playoff run. Only to come up against, guess who? The Pittsburgh Penguins in the Stanley Cup Finals. Where they lose. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that one, so, that story will never get old. So uh, to me, that's the worst signing. And it's got nothing to do with the contract, nothing to do with money, nothing to do with points, assists, goals, nothing like that. It is simply yeah, the Stanley Cup. Great player inducted into the Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. And, and, and listen, he would get his Stanley Cup the next year with the Blackhawks. Yeah. So at the end of that year, he signs with Chicago and ends up winning the 2010 Cup with Chicago. Ended up getting his name on the Cup a few times after. So for him, he might might look back on that now and laugh. But if I'm on that handshake line in 2009, looking <laughs> yeah. at my old teammates saying, hey, I could have yeah. signed with you guys. And yeah, now you, you want to talk the, about awkward. You took the ring off my finger. <sighs> yeah, I, I'm glad it worked out for him in the end. But I, I couldn't agree more. That is one of the more unique stories. You get to uh, similar to what you touched on before with uh, the Messier situation. You've got these two teams that are battling it out, but there wasn't a three year gap in between them. That was the team they saw the previous season. He's got a flip flop to the other locker room. That that must have been some kind of uh, personal <laughs> situation. And I I got I had to check there. this out, but I, I don't know. He might have had a quote where he said, "I think I have a better chance of winning the Stanley Cup with Detroit." <laughs> And you know that made it to the locker room wall in there uh, for the opponents. It's just <laughs> they could pick on him for that one. Uh, unfortunately, that one didn't work out for him, and, and that's okay. So uh, he, he, I don't think, is upset having seen how things turned out, and now he's in the Hall of Fame, so I don't think he's losing any sleep over it. But, no. yeah, that, that was an interesting one for sure. Uh, I'm, I'm going to flip-flop it and go back to one of, the, uh, one of my favorite signings. Uh, I'm all about – uh, the the underdogs, especially the guys that were great players, and then they start to age and people start to question them. Do they have it anymore? People constantly question me whether or not I have it anymore. And the answer is almost always no. But in the case of National Hockey League players, once in a while, you find a guy who can still go past a certain age. So uh, to, I'm taking it back to 2006 here. Uh, the, the Detroit Red Wings go out and sign old Dominic Hasek at age 41. Wow. Uh, for, He's a free agent, comes in for his second tour of duty in Hockey Town. So the guy, I, I mean, there's a lot to be said about him. Now we know that he's continued to play later on up until, uh, I think he played pro or semi-pro up until about age 50 or into his early 50s. You know, the, the everybody used to say he had a slinky for a spine. The guy was- Priceless, as they say. As they said. As MasterCard then. says. <laughs> well, uh, he, uh, you know, he had a phenomenal career, super, just a fantastic athlete, but he really did seem that the age 41 was just a number when he first came back. Uh, he posted a 205 goals against average back then. Uh, pretty good for a 41 year old coming in. Uh, his second year with the team teams up with Chris Osgood and the wings go on and win the Stanley cup uh, for a free agent signing. You take a chance on a guy over 41 you really can't uh, you can't ask for a better role than that. Now, granted, he may not have been uh, the starter in every point of that playoff series, but you go out and sign a 41-year-old goalie, I think that's a pretty good 
ending for everybody. I, I don't think there'd be anybody losing sleep over signing Dom Hashik, one of the great, if not the greatest goaltender of all time right there. And I think so he did be... play the first two games of the playoffs that year. If I don't have to, if I'm not mistaken, he did, did start, but Oscar took over and won that cup. He did. And even still, he's, he goes on that list for me. I love to see somebody succeed despite the odds and at 41 to get his name on a Stanley cup and win it. Um, I would say that's, that's pretty good. So, uh, so what do you got now? Great so we've pick. got, uh, we've got some, some tops, some minuses. What are you thinking? Who else you got on your list here? All right. So I'll stick with the top for now and I'll go to the, I'll go back. I'll go like you. I'll go to the crease. Another memorable one. And for me, they, these memorable ones come with a, a press conference where the guy puts on the Jersey and puts two hands up in the air. This Love one is a good press conference. This one is 1998. Curtis Joseph signs with Toronto. All the leaves for sure. Now, Curtis Joseph, he had a you know pretty solid career when he was with, of course, St. Louis. Then he went to Edmonton and he had done real well with the Oilers. A couple of underdog victories. I know they had some first round stunners in the playoffs in the years prior to that. So he signs in 98 with Toronto, which I was both upset and happy with because, number one, I always like seeing what uh, the goaltenders are going to get as new helmets. For him, it was an easy transfer over of the Cujo dog theme. But he pushes out Felix Potvin. Oof, so I remember I was a bi- big fan of the cat. So when Potvin got pushed aside, I was a little upset and he ends up going to the Islanders. So it's a win for me. So, I mean, that's close. Having a great, like a local, having a guy local to me to watch like Felix Potvin is pretty cool. Although it didn't last very long, but Joseph had a pretty solid show in Toronto. He had four years there. One, two, three, four. Yeah. From 97, 97, 98 to 2000, 2000 2001, 2002, he was the starting goaltender. Uh, I don't know. One of the more memorable Moments is when Mario Lemieux came back and scored a few goals on him in his first game <laughs> in that, the igloo. But, that would happen to the best of us, I would say. But I would say that was a good move for the Maple Leafs. Put them in st- some solid uh, track to continue progressing as, a, as a, a team that made the playoffs and had some deep runs in those years. And they've once he left, and oddly enough, he signs in Toronto when he leaves uh, signs with the the wings in 02 when he leaves the the Maple Leafs. But Joseph going to Toronto definitely turned things around for that franchise and put them on a, a good trajectory for the next few years. So I like the Joseph signing uh, that year, yeah. So Keeper, do you ever use a uh, Curtis Curve goalie stick? Speaking of old Cujo. I never did use a Curtis Curve. Uh, I never really understood how you can get your hand around that. <laughs> And I like to well, do some poke checks. I'll save that for a little bit later. But I don't know how you could slide your hand down the, the shaft of the stick with the Curtis Curve. Well, the guy was an innovator. Whether or not it worked is another story. But, but I will uh, say I did use some uh, heat and waves like Curtis Joseph did. Well, we're not going to get the keeper started on vintage goal equipment just yet because that'll be another conversation that'll last all day. Uh, instead, I'm going to switch it over. We'll talk about my uh, my number two favorite signing and this this one's a little convoluted for me because it's not directly a ufa signing uh we're talking about scott stevens here uh and the reason i say we're talking about him but he may not be the signing just yet is because we're actually talking about the st louis blues uh they had scott stevens on their roster and they go out and they sign a restricted free agent by the name of Brendan Shanahan from the New Jersey Devils. Uh, in that signing, in the process, 
Yeah, you may have heard of the guy. Pretty good hockey player. Uh, worked for the league. Over 600 goals. No big deal. Yeah, no biggie. I mean, you know, he could put the biscuit to basket for the best of them. But Brendan Shanahan ends up going the other way. Uh, Scott Stevens comes back to the Devils in I think a lot of people respected Stevens at the time, but I don't know that anybody could have predicted how much of an impact he would have in joining the New Jersey Devils uh, over the next three seasons. They sort of redefined the game at the time. They they changed the way the game was played. A defensive style allowed Marty Brodeur to come in and do what he did, uh, rewrite some of the record books. And, and Scott Stevens, one of the most feared, if not the most feared player of all time. Ask Eric Lindros. Ask a whole bunch of guys, Paul Correa. There's a whole bunch of oh, yeah. players that I I think would uh, w- are probably still seeing Scott Stevens in their nightmares. I see but him Steve- saying, "You're next." <laughs> I'll I'll be honest. I do check the closet at night for Scott Stevens before I go to bed just to make sure it's safe. Uh, he is a he was a dangerous player. He really changed the game, changed the way that the game was played, and all that came off of a restricted free agent signing and sent somebody the other way. I always found that to be an interesting story because as good as Brendan Shanahan was, and I understand why the Blues would go after a guy like Shanny, but uh, I would have to say that Scott Stevens going the other way, and that was in uh, a situation that the nobody could have anticipated the impact on that one. So what do you got next, Keeper? We're at uh, I've got two positives and I've got a negative down. So what do you got? I'll tell you the truth. Mine can kind of fall into either category. Uh, so as far as a negative signing, I have two guys, two two for one almost here. And they come again in the summer of 1997. And they come from the New York Rangers. Uh, the two, I would say, are bad. These are not good signings, although it's unfair to the player themselves because they're put in a situation that may, may not have been their role, were Mike Keene and Brian Scrudlin. Both signed with the Rangers in the summer of 1997. I, I would imagine to fill the void that Messier would leave because there was no guarantee he was going to return. Uh, their uh, their 97-98 seasons with the Rangers didn't uh, end up very well for them. Uh, let's see here. For Brian Scrudlin, looking at his 97-98 stats, uh, he scored five goals in 59 games. Uh, Again, he's not a goal scorer. He's more of a leader. But that team was not positioned at that point to go on a great run. And they started the season out winless in, I think, their first four games. Well, they they had four ties back when there were ties. So he didn't last very long with the Rangers. He only lasted that one season. Not even. He gets uh, dealt to Dallas during the season so he doesn't survive very long with the rangers as they didn't look like they were going to be a playoff contender towards the end of the year and then mike keen also in the 97 98 season didn't survive the whole year either also going to dallas and for his numbers too and he was coming off a stanley cup with the colorado avalanche a couple years earlier so and with montreal a few years earlier than that in 93 so they brought in two veteran leaders that year didn't pan out. The team wasn't in the position to have veteran leaders like that, probably put into roles that weren't for them. And those, to me, are not the best signings in an era of really bad signings by the New York Rangers. Some of those with those guys, I think, really end up being victim of timing. You know, you think the New York Rangers the season before end up losing uh, decisively to the Philadelphia Flyers. And you can't fault them for losing out to a team that had the Legion of Doom at the top of their game. But how much do you think of, of those two signings you brought up? How much do you think of that is the Rangers maybe reacting to what they had lost to last year, trying to bring in players that maybe could have helped them contain 
the uh, Legion of Doom guys. But then all of a sudden, once Messier is gone, the Rangers have this big hole in the lineup. And those two, you know, they had certainly they were useful role players, maybe in the right positions at that point in their career. But filling a void for a guy like Messier, that's a uh, that's a tall order for anybody. Yeah, no, that's not good. That was, I think you're right on with that. Uh, they're trying to compensate there. They, I mean, that 97 playoff run was pretty good for the Rangers. They did. They, they beat uh, Florida, New Jersey, uh, and they went to the conference finals against Philadelphia. It was a different era. And I guess size and strength was the number one for teams. And those guys were going to fit a plugging grinding type role, but maybe they might've been asked to score more goals than they were capable of. And that year, the Rangers had Pat LaFontaine, who got injured. It just doesn't seem like uh, the right time in Rangers history for them. Just bad time. The and that was, that was the beginning of a particularly dark era in Rangers history, where they went a, a long stretch without making the playoffs. And hey, for Mike Keene, uh, he would eventually... Oh, I'm sorry. For Mike Keene, he eventually goes on to win another cup for Dallas. So, like, for Keene, he was That's you know, right. still he was still a, a solid player for the Rangers to pick up in 97. He still had years left. He had it left in him. He just wasn't probably used maybe uh, or was just asked to do something too far outside his role, which, can't, like you said earlier, you can't really blame the player on that one. But, yeah, I can understand that. Uh, the Rangers are hoping to get those extra two pieces to put him over the top, beat Philly. Uh, and instead, it, it all goes south and starts a near decade long run where they don't even qualify for the postseason. Oh, boy. Uh, so that, that's tough. Uh, the, the next player that I'm going to touch on here uh, is going to go into my one of my three worst signings category. Uh, it kind of comes to mind for me after talking about those guys after the Rangers get to that they get out of that 10 year phase you're talking about a little bit later, they go and uh, they kind of go off the board and take a unique player in Sean Avery. Uh, Rangers have him for a little while. And he, this guy, what else can you say about this guy? He changed the rule book by the way he waved in Marty Brodor's face and tried to distract him. He was a, a real uh, a firebrand. We'll call him on and off the ice. Some uh, put it personal, mildly. Issues, yeah, some personal issues, some indiscretions, but he did <laughs> seem to bring some value to that New York Rangers team at the time. Uh, so he kind of earns this status as a super pest after antagonizing Marty Brodor. But there's still a lot of people, I think, at that point that are looking at Avery saying, well, this guy is going to bring something to the table. Dallas Stars are certainly one of those uh, parties as they go out and sign Avery to a four year, $15.5 million contract. Uh, but the results to this signing, uh, I'll admit, I, I found some of Avery's antics with the Rangers to be fun to watch. Uh, then he goes to Dallas and things kind of go off. For me, they go off the rails a little bit. Uh, production was not there. You're talking three goals and 10 points in uh, in his first 23 games. And he, believe it or not, was more productive than that with the Rangers. But the, the embarrassing issues off the ice, the locker room situation, and uh, just the disruption that he caused to that team, uh, obviously, uh, to kind of dumb it down a little bit, you know, there was uh, some rude and uh, we'll say sexually suggestive comments to uh, reporters talking about some opposing players that are now dating former girlfriends, uh, the, the whole sloppy seconds incident. Not not a great look for Avery and the Dallas Stars. So he gets suspended by the league, which for that type of situation, you don't see uh, happen a whole lot. He gets uh, some a whole bunch of bad press. He was 
pretty much, I mean, he was public enemy number one, I'm sure, in Dallas for a little while. So he goes on and serves the suspension. The Stars put him on waivers, and then he gets reclaimed by the New York Rangers anyway. So I can't imagine any, from just from a contract perspective, these teams making an investment. I can't think of any players uh, that things backfired that quickly and that spectacularly on a uh, from a negative standpoint. And Avery went on to have some success with the Rangers after that and had some before, but just his signing with Dallas was not uh, not meant to be for sure. I don't know why in the world he would sign with Dallas. <laughs> I <just can't> figure <laughs> it out. You play for the New York Rangers in New York City. They yeah. love you there. I just can't. A different... I don't know how we would sign anywhere but New York. I mean, anywhere, Dallas compared to New York, I can't figure it out. But hey, it didn't work. What are you going to do? Got to move on. So uh, let, let's go back to your list. What do you got next? All right. So I don't even know if this is good or bad. Actually, no, this one is good. And I'll go with, a, a tr- I guess, a traditional pick or a more an easier pick that's not very uh, sentimental. But I would say Zidane Char signing with the, the Boston Bruins in 2006 probably is one of the better free agent signings. Of course, he's still there. Yeah. He's over 40 now. Norris Trophy winner, 08, 09. Uh, Stanley Cup 2011. They could have easily won the Cup two years, uh, two years later in 13 against Chicago. Uh, and they could have won last year in 2019 against the Blues in Game 7. So... I mean, that is um, a, a franchise-altering signing by the Bruins in, in 06. And I don't think anybody at that time, you know, 2006, he I, he wasn't the youngest guy even back then. This wasn't a player you ever could have expected that you're going to get 16 more seasons out of at a high level. Uh, obviously, he him being one of, the, if I believe he is the biggest player of all time in the National Hockey League, that certainly doesn't hurt having that size advantage, but the continued excellence he's shown for such a long period of time after that. Yeah. You, you can't really argue with that. And he had already been in the league for eight years to the, yeah. to the point where he signs with the Bruins. So I think that's gotta be one of the best signings Yeah, I, in, I, in the I, modern I, era of July 1st type free agencies. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. There's uh, plenty, plenty of good that's come out of that. That's he's been a transformative player for that franchise. So certainly a good one. Uh, so I'm going to go the other direction on this one. So you want to talk about transformative players to a franchise's defensive core. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Wade Redden. Comes oh, great. Over the, comes over to the New York Rangers on a six year, $39 million deal. And, and one thing I found when I was trying to put this list together before we get into Redden it's virtually impossible to have a discussion about bad free agent signings without bringing at least three mentions of the New York Rangers. These guys <laughs> had some stinkers. I mean, they just, for a good period of time, and again, we're talking about the modern free agency era, they threw money at everything but the kitchen sink. And the results, in a lot of the cases, up until maybe recently with Artemi Panarin, uh, they were disastrous, and Wade Redden is going to be the poster child for that here. So they signed him to a six-year, $39 million contract. Uh, immediately, there's indications of a possible substance abuse problem with Redden. Uh, the Rangers go on, and they hope that he's that missing piece for their defensive core that they hadn't had since Brian Leach's retirement. He goes on to – he was an effective power play producer in Ottawa. He comes over to the Rangers, scores only five goals – and 35 points over the first two seasons, uh, which obviously is not 
not the production you're looking for out of a guy that you're hoping is going to positively transform your defense and put you over the edge. So the, uh, the fans at the garden were uh, a little bit less than enthusiastic about Redden's presence on the team. He was a frequent subject of the boo birds up in the rafters, uh, not a very well-liked guy coming in and out. So the Rangers eventually have to exile this guy down to the American hockey league, uh, which he continued to collect his contract and keep on moving on. He, uh, he played his last two seasons with the Hartford, like, I guess it was the Wolfpack at the time. That's pre-Connecticut whale, pre-back to Hartford Wolfpack days. Yeah. Uh, so he goes on to play in the AHL and uh, was still earning that NHL salary, but wasn't contributing to the Rangers at all. So they they waste that six-year, $39 million deal, and they end up having to go back to the drawing board on the defense anyway. Just a disastrous signing for, for New York. Of all of their disastrous signings, for me, that's got to be the worst one. And I wonder if you're someone like Wade Redden, if you, I mean, you, you got, they're competitive people. So they're definitely upset at their performance, but they are not suffering financially as a result of these. So it's hard to, not it's hard to blame anybody for signing these contracts, which is basically like your ticket for the rest of your life. Sure. Like you don't yeah, have to somebody, do anything. Somebody comes in here and offers us six years, $39 million. You can bet you we're going to sign that. Oh, we may not yeah. even know what it's for, but we're going to go ahead and take that contract, whether we can deliver or not. Uh, and Wade Redden, there may be some of that as well, but uh, just a disaster for the Rangers. And he had played pretty well in Ottawa up, up to that point. So it's like, well, you take a gamble and you hope that, you know, you, you the, the risk pays off. But, geez, another one of those guys buried in, the, in Hartford for a little while, you know, buried in the minor leagues. A lot of free agent signings uh, in that era, buried sure. in the minors until they could be bought out or ended up becoming Ooh, pretty obscure. All right, so you got any other free agents for us? Well, I've got one more. I think it's one that uh, you're going to agree with, and this one came out of my search for some positives. We just talked about some of the, the negatives uh, dealing with the New York Rangers franchise. Uh, one of the positives that I have to go to for them would be the 1991 signing of Adam Graves coming over from the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, I had to put him on my list. Uh, I, I know you and I have both met the man. Just just a great guy overall. Uh, always involved with charity work in and around the tri-state area. Uh, but what he did for the New York Rangers by helping come over from that Edmonton core, uh, he was more than just a part of that group. He came over. Uh, the expectations for Graves coming over from the kid line days, coming over to New York and breaking Vic Hadfield's record that season and scoring 52 goals, uh, setting what was at the time the franchise record for goals scored. Uh, the Rangers were optimistic when they signed Graves that he would help bring some of that championship uh, mentality, that willingness to stand in front of the net. They knew what they were getting, but I don't think anybody ever guessed this guy was going to come in and score 52 goals. I don't think so. And uh, obviously his, you know, his dedication to the team, helping them win the Stanley Cup, uh, for me, that stands out as just a, a great signing, a good person, good man to see that happen and see him come in and go on to play 10 full seasons with the Rangers, providing that leadership. Uh, that, that's got to be, uh, with the exception of, we'll see for them, if uh, right now the early indicators are that a guy like Panarin is looking pretty solid over there, guy that would have taken that number nine if it hadn't been for oh. Adam Graves over here, having it retired already. Uh, but he certainly looks like one of the best free agent signings for me in NHL history, uh, but certainly I think in the history of the Rangers. 
I think, yeah, I can't argue with that. He was on my list as well. Uh, he wore number 11 when he first came to the Rangers early on That's before, right. That's before, right. before, before they got Messier. That's right. So okay. Messier didn't come until early October and he had already worn number 11. So that was kind of cool. And the best image of Graves I had, I remember during the 94 celebration on ice, he looks into the camera and screams 1940. That's yeah. You got to love players with that kind of passion, letting it spill over out onto the screen, yelling it into the camera. That's great. So Graves, I think you nailed it perfectly. No more to say on that. He was, uh, that's gotta be one of the best signings, at least in, like you said, franchise history and NHL history. I would have to agree. I I think we've touched on some good uh, signings. We touched on some bad ones. So now we're going to step out for a little segment we call Hugging the Post with the Keeper. Uh, During this segment, the Keeper is going to tell us about all things goaltending. He's going to take us into the twilight zone of the goaltending position, some of the quirks, some of the things uh, that you're not going to know unless you're a goaltender yourself. And uh, it's a pretty crazy bunch they can be. Uh, Keeper, what's on your mind? Uh, Well, in this Hugging the Post segment, I just like to talk about some uh, antiquated techniques to stop the puck. They might be antiquated, but they are extremely fun to do. And when you see goaltenders doing them now, it makes you leap out of your seat. So a few of them I like to touch upon. Let's see how many we could talk about are the poke check. Oh, the old poke check, a classic. The two-pad stack. (laughs) A personal favorite of mine. The split skate save. Uh, And that's it. I think we'll go with those for now. All right. We'll work on those three. The poke check. Um, I think that maybe the guy who does it now, now I'll say the most, but is a guy like Marc-Andre Fleury will do a poke check every now and then, and it will look really cool. I know Tom Thomas Grice did one against Sidney Crosby a couple years ago. That really like was like an awe-inspiring moment. We'll watch as, a, as a, a goalie who likes all things vintage. But I think the poke check, when done properly, when well-timed, can throw a lot of players off of what they were thinking they were going to do, especially if they had their head down. And a goalie lunges at them. One of your names that you mentioned in the free agency world, Dominic Hasek, was probably the greatest in doing it. He would, I mean, there was some where he came out almost at a blue line and upended players completely. Some violent collisions for sure. Where goalie coaches today who are so like into technically playing the game properly would probably have a heart attack if they saw a goaltender doing that now. If nothing else for injury. You know, because you're literally putting your life on the line. And it's, there's poke checks where you can just nicely slide the stick out of your hand and make, you know, poke check the puck as it's coming from a player who cuts across the crease. I can't stand when a player cuts across the crease and beats you. So throwing a poke check is, a, I like doing that, but I'll probably, telegraph, kind of probably telegraph it every time. Well, I, I agree. I, those are some of the most fun sequences you'll see. Some vintage hockey clips where the goalie comes out for a big sweeping poke check. I, that's one of those plays, in my mind, whether he makes the play or not, it's going to be a highlight reel. Either the guy's going around him and he's tucking it in and it's going to be a beautiful goal, or the goalie's going to take the puck out, possibly the player out, and it's going to be fun either way. You got to look up the Dominic Hashik ones. Those are like the classic where he takes a player out with him. That's great. Hashik was fearless, skating out and going after some players. <laughs> With a helmet that is as flimsy as, as, as you can imagine, the Cooper SK2000 plastic, beautiful look. But I don't know how protective it is if you get to skate to the head. I think you hit it well. I think the goalie coaches now would uh, maybe have a little bit of trouble skating out to the blue line. I think we saw some of that from uh, Tim Thomas, too, in the Boston days, skating out and going for some huge poke checks. Yeah, There's Thomas. Some recent, I think- some recent guys go for it. 
I think these are all things that guys should have in their uh, bag of tricks. You know, even even today's goalies, you got to have a little surprise every now and then to make a save and come up with a with a save that you may not be able to do technically correct. You have to be able to have some of this um, athletic ability to pull these off. Uh, another one, two pad stack. Probably the greatest one I could think of is Kirk McLean in the '94 playoffs against Calgary. I think it was in Game uh, Seven of the first round in overtime, where he comes across two pads stacked with the puck looks like it's at the at the goal line. Even stand up goalies could do two pad stacks. So the two pad stack slide, both pads stacked up on top of one another, got to be one of the most exciting plays. Again, you put your you, know, you put your life on the line when you lay your body out like that. I think Robin Lehner had a great two pad stack save for the Blackhawks this year when he before he got dealt to Vegas, uh, and that made highlight highlight reels because to see a guy do a two pad stack not common, but awesome. Not at all, not at all. I, I, one guy that always comes to mind for the two pad stack or the two pad slide, as I used to hear, hear it referred to, uh, Martin Brodeur. I feel like he used to just sit there and goad players into trying the one-time pass so he could slide across and make that big kick save on the other hand, on the other side of the two-pad stack. Uh, One of the most frustrating plays as a shooter, if you get that puck on net and you lift it and you think you've got the goalie down dead to rights and all of a sudden a foot comes out of nowhere, kicks it away, there's no way that you're not going back to the bench shaking your head and just wondering what exactly just happened, but certainly a fun play to watch. Uh, I couldn't agree more on that one. I hate when the goalie pulls it off successfully, but fortunately you don't see him much anymore, even at the uh, beer league level. Oh, I'm still pulling off a two-pad stack every uh, every Tuesday night. Well, uh, I, w- I was more so referring to saves. I wasn't really talking about attempts. I'm oh, talking no, about no. saves I... that were actually made. Listen, I'm kicking pucks out here. Well, we'll agree or disagree on that. Every uh, third or fourth attempt. So if you're still doing that, are you still making the uh, third mention you had there, the split skate save, I okay, believe? Okay, so this one, you take your life into your ha- your own hands when you attempt to do this. Uh, for those of you and who don't know what a Sounds uh, painful. For, for If you don't know what a split skate save is, that's where you actually turn your foot out, where your entire inner calf is exposed. So you're basically turning the most padded portion of your leg away from the puck to artfully kick a puck away with your skate blade or your inner foot. I was taught this in goal in a goalie school, a goalie clinic. And I don't know how they would ever teach this to anybody without severely injuring you. I imagine trying to do this on an Alexander Ovechkin one-timer. Oof. I mean, you're probably going to be having welts all over your thigh, but two good guys who were really good at doing it, but I have video footage of them doing it, are Ron Hextall and Bill Ranford. Probably wow. the greatest at directing a puck with not only the skate blade, but you could have your stick there deflect, directing it into a corner as well to get rid of the rebound. But when those guys did it, it just looks so artful. And then like the way the body is positioned, the way the skate comes out, there's a flair to it. It's got some drama. And it's so fun to do. These might not be effective, but they are fun. <laughs> may, like you said, they may be antiquated, but when you see them pulled off well, uh, and, and those guys didn't play that long ago. So you no. imagine they were probably trained, you know, during the older age, during the, the time when guys like Ken Dryden were playing net. That's that same. Those guys would have been the ones teaching these up and comers. So you get guys like Ranford and uh, Hextall learning from that era 
uh, it's probably hard to unlearn something that you learned. And, and once in a while, I'm sure they saw an opportunity even later on in their careers and threw one out there. And a player's got to be shaking their head after getting stopped by a kick save like that. Oh, for um, sure. Pretty, uh, pretty interesting stuff. You know, and seeing those guys like Hextall and Ranford still have success in today's NHL in uh, either management roles or coaching roles, you know, they probably have had to adapt what they think is solid goaltending, or at least like for Ranford, I know he's the goalie coach for Los Angeles, to adapt the way he would, you know, help goalies today in, in this in their system. You know, he can't be teaching them a two-pad stack or a split True. skate save. Nearly a different position, although I did see that one video of Bill Ranford suiting up and facing shots, I believe, from the L.A. Kings team, uh, sticking to the stand-up style. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. I believe that was Bill Ranford. It certainly was. Uh, I think it was this year. And he was facing at his current age. He was lining up against National Hockey League shooters with modern equipment, and he was sticking to the stand-up style, and he was swatting pucks away like it was nobody's business. It's so cool. That was, uh, that was fun to watch. It's cool to see those guys who used to know, like I grew up watching, that we grew up watching, still put on the gear. Like I know Ranford played in that uh, Heritage Classic alumni game with Edmonton and Winnipeg in, nine, in uh, 2016. And he brought back his vintage Vaughn legacy pads and his vintage uh, styled mask. Uh, so there, I mean, it's cool to see old goalies still do it because they don't all do it. It definitely is. And I think for hockey, you know, the position, the goaltending position, obviously the gear that they wear has changed so much that uh, when you get to see what the old stuff looked like and what these guys were playing with, it really, it's just such a contrast between what you, now you're used to seeing most guys playing a similar style the equipment, you know, is uh, shaped differently. It hugs their body differently. They move on the ice differently. You know, these guys from 20 to 40 years ago were wearing very, very different equipment. And I, I think that you couldn't, I don't know, as a goalie, could you even do the split skates day, for example? Could you even do that easily in modern equipment? I try. It could be done. You could still like you could still angle your foot out to make a split skate split skate save. I think they still it's still possible, but the pad might rotate too much now. Like if you go to make a two pad stack, your pad might rotate to the point where, you know, your 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 whole shin is exposed. Depends how tight guys wear their pads. So the pad might just stay on the ice, and your foot might just turn. Yeah, you might you might get a lot of rotation in your gear. Uh, that's not going to And work. one honorable mention, and it's in the Polkchek family. I don't know if you know this one. You probably do. You've seen it. And you've probably even done it yourself. It's a Polkchek, but when a guy goes behind the net, you kind of follow him and swing your stick out along the ice. Uh, oh, the Billy Smith. The Billy classic. Smith. And it's the oh, Islander guys like Glenn Healy and Mark Fitzpatrick of the early 90s. So I watched do it a lot. A proud and, tradition from and, the old barn. Yeah, and they learned it from Billy Smith. And I love it when a guy, you, you trip up a player. But when you get a puck directly and you just swipe it off, I don't think a player is expecting that on a wraparound. And that's it for me as far as the keeper stuff is concerned. But I just want to mention those cool things because it's fun to watch uh, goalies today use those techniques of the past. Because it's yeah, just exciting I, to watch. I agree. We'll uh, we'll work on getting some clips of some of these uh, old goaltending techniques that uh, the keeper's talking about. We'll get some of those posted up on our blog so you can take a look at them and see what you think but yeah so you're like uh you know the nhl is coming back we have our 24 team playoff format which i don't know if training camps are slated to start july 10th which is very rapid 
Uh, I'm very excited to watch hockey this summer, but the hockey oh, we see, the hockey we see during the this unique playoffs will not be the same as what we what we used to like in the '90s or the early 2000s, even. And um, I don't know. What do you think? Has there been a lot of differences in the, little, the game? Uh, little, little, something different. I love the. Uh, I hope it happens, but uh, I love the idea of the 24 team format. I think that the uh, play in allows some teams that were on the bubble to get a shot, and I, I really am excited to see uh, what happens. Will we see a team that otherwise wouldn't have made the postseason? Will we see them win in the play-in round and upset somebody? I mean, everybody loves a good upset, so now you've got a situation where a team can go from 12th and possibly win the Stanley Cup. Uh, I can't imagine that that's something that wouldn't be fun to watch. Uh, I, I'm excited for that personally, but yeah, that, that does bring to mind some uh, some ideas. You know, you talk about this season being this being something a little new, a little different uh, compared to a lot of other sports. The NHL is a sport and it's a, a league that has seen a lot of changes over the years comparative to some of the other sports. I mean, you know, if you look at an old clip of a basketball game or a, a boxing match, something like that, you may laugh at the the hairstyle or how short shorts, the, the short shorts or how tall the socks are. Uh, but for the most part, those athletes are wearing just about the same equipment. Uh, the, the playing field between a player from the 60s or 70s or the 2010s 20s largely comes down to nutrition and training yes i'm sure there's been some advances in maybe the sneakers that they wear but for the most part those sports you're really looking at they're playing with the same equipment the same gear there's been some tweaks to their rules over the years but hockey is a sport that has seen a lot of change you touched on in the last segment you've got uh, goalies that are essentially unrecognizable, a modern goaltender versus a goaltender from not that long ago, maybe 1994, 1995. Um, you're, you're talking two different things. These guys are wearing different equipment. It's lightweight. It They make a, a I mean, you can talk maybe a little bit more about the goaltending specific parts, but the players have sticks that with a tremendous flex in them, they're not using wood. You know, in baseball, for example, they have, they know about technology that allows players to hit uh, you can build a composite baseball bat that can send a ball out 500, 500 feet, you know, over the over the wall, gone 500 feet. But they don't use those. They stick to the wood bats. They stick to what the tradition has been for the sport. Hockey has been more of, a, I, I guess, maybe a progressive minded sport in that they've come up with changes and tweaks to the rules to allow for the stuff. Uh, wh- what are some of the things that stand out from a rules and equipment standpoint for hockey over the years with this 2014 format being the newest rule, newest change. What are some of the things over the years that really stand out to you as a uh, kind of a night and day type thing? I, I guess I could speak to the trapezoid. The trapezoid. Uh, the trapezoid. Uh, yeah. A controversial figure amongst goaltenders, I'm sure. Yeah. The punishment for being a good stick handler. <laughs> That's Yeah. I can't imagine that in another sport. I mean, can you imagine... Uh, a, a team, you know, a league that has rules and then ends up with players that are really excelling. I mean, you wouldn't have put a a rule to stop Michael Jordan from dunking the ball. You know, yeah, no, you just... I don't know why they would. I mean, I guess it's the Marty Brodeur rule in terms of how well he was able to, you know, go into a corner and stop a dump in, uh, essentially killing a team's, you know, four check. 
and moving the puck back the other the other way, being a third defenseman. I know he was great at it. Ron Hextall before him. Tom Barrasso, I think, is underrated. He's a really good puck handler. I've seen him make some outlet passes to Mario Lemieux or Yarmir Yager that just maybe those are the like the that sort of like you said, it, it stops great players from doing great things. And maybe one of these days the trapezoid will be a thing of the past, but for right now it's still there. So what do you think? Uh, you, obviously, I, I've seen a lot of goaltenders today that I feel across the board, and this is just you know a, a forwards observation, but I see a, a goaltender the on average today seems to be much more competent with controlling and handling the puck and maybe making that outlet pass. I'm sure they're not all great, but uh, the average skill level seems to be higher than it may have been 20 years ago. Goalies sometimes look like they go out of the net and chase a puck and be a little lost out there. And I've seen you do that once or twice, but. Oh yeah, uh, but it's fun. What's your thought though? Uh, do you think now that some other rules have changed since the trapezoid was implemented, uh, there's no two line pass anymore. Some other things have changed. What, what do you think? You think that's something that we'll see stay in the league or you think they'll ever revert it back to. I don't. I don't know. It's hard to. It's hard to see them reverting back to ways where they wouldn't have as, as much offense as they could in a game. Because I think all of these were done to get as much scoring as possible. You know, to have the game speed up. So I don't see them reversing anything anytime soon. And that's a good point you bring up as far as uh, the speed of the game. Because I've had this discussion with a lot of different people, and I hear some different viewpoints. Uh, some people, and I think rightfully so, when they talk about the players, uh, their individual level of speed, uh, I think when you used to watch National Hockey League games, you know, back into the 80s and 90s, the players that could really fly, a Pavel Bore, a Mike Gartner, somebody who could really wide open throttles, just fly out there on the ice, they really looked like they were blowing by their opponents. Oh, yeah. I and I, I think what you're seeing now, I think the average player is probably much faster than the average player was 20 years ago. And as a result, it really takes a generational talent like a McDavid or, uh, a, you know, somebody else who's smaller and built for speed like a Carl Haglin or somebody like, uh, you know, Michael Grabner. There, there's a few players that pop out. Johnny Goudreau. Yeah, some players do have that breakaway speed still, but it just doesn't seem to be as impactful. So I guess my question is if we kind of establish that the defensive players are also skating faster so the the difference in speed between a forward and a defender is kind of nullified a little bit more than it maybe used to be, do we actually think that the flow of the game has gotten faster or do we think that I, I think we can all kind of agree the the players might be physically skating faster, but is the game flow faster than it was say in the mid nineties. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it, I don't know if it is as fast. Maybe teams are just too down to sticking to a system that they can't, that they can't veer away from and be more, uh, have more uh, improv a little more when they're on the ice or have some reading and reacting as opposed to sticking to a specific way you have to play or a specific way you enter a zone. You know, I don't know. Maybe some, maybe some teams have a a more allow their players to play a more freeing style, where they have a little more creativity. But um, I don't know. Maybe it's not as fast as it once was. It, it's you hard. Have to individual say. players, like you said, who are faster. Yeah, and but I don't think you, there's any denying McDavid is probably one of the fastest players to ever play in the league. 
and I have to look at the numbers, but when they do the fastest skater at the All-Star game, how close are those numbers to guys like Mike Gartner? I, I've seen some differences. You've seen some players come in, but whether or not the technology is even the same to capture, I mean, 25 years ago, if you were dependent upon somebody to hit the button and hit the button again versus a computer yeah. upstairs physically tracking their pros- their uh, progress around the rink, I don't know. For me, I don't know that there's enough there to be able to say one way or the other. Uh, but I do think my personal opinion, having watched hockey for a very long time, uh, I watch a lot of the games today and I, I am blown away by the speed of the individual player. But I always leave games feeling unimpressed by the speed of the flow of the game. I think that for me, there's a big difference watching the structure, watching, you know, the uh, the parity that they've built in the league now is is a good thing in some ways. But at the other side of the coin. Uh, watching teams gain the zone, dump the puck around and cycle around the boards. It takes a ton of skill to do it. It takes strength and speed. And I'd probably die if I tried to do it for 15 seconds in the NHL at the speed that those guys move with. Uh, but the the product for a fan, somebody watching in the stands, watching at home, uh, it just seems it's so much more structured that the, the flow, the speed, uh, I watch even now I watch recaps the first thing and I'm sure you've seen watching some of the recaps during this time where we've had no hockey the penalties obviously back then you watch some things now and you're like oh my goodness I cannot believe he just got away with that oh yeah I've done a lot of watching old games from not from the 90s I know that I'm watching a lot of the uh the 94 playoff run as well and I like the comments from commentators like john davidson where they say referees put the is gregson's putting the whistle away tonight anything goes like that a lot of the calls that are missed would be uh, reviewable plays with the you know directors of uh, safety today so yeah I mean, they'd be having some sit downs with the league <laughs> a lot more sure. suspensions and under today's and that was a one referee system yeah <laughs> that is true that makes a big difference uh, one referee versus that second set of eyes. But I just always come back to the general feeling that watching and, and it's hard to kind of fight that nostalgia bias too, where, you know, watching the games when you were younger, obviously things seem faster. I get uh, that. Yeah, much but bigger I've been watching some of them recently and I just can't help but find that the announcers, the, the flow of play. I mean, you're talking one team is rushing in on a two on one. The fans are standing up. They've got their hands, you know, on, on the top of their head. Every second, the puck, the goalie makes the guy takes a big shot or the goalie makes a big save puck wraps around a board. They pick the puck up the other way and it's a three on two back that way. And it's just back and forth. Now, granted, not all games were like that. And especially as the defensive structures took hold in the late nineties, but you know, it, it, you look at the record books and the time period between 1986 and 1993. I mean, there were several hundred point scorers on many teams. Uh, the offense was wide open. Double it, digit 50 goal scores. Yeah, it's a different uh, different feeling from what we have now where we know these guys are fast. But the product of what you're watching, because they're so good, results in uh, a lot of just congestion, a lot of tactical defensive minded hockey, which I have a ton of respect for, but it isn't necessarily as much fun to watch for me, although I'll always be a hockey fan no matter what. But well, I'll, I'll be once the, once the playoffs start, hopefully they do start. We having a you know keen eye on watching the speed of the game this time around. <clears throat> Cause I wonder what, it, you know, what shape the players will be in. I'm sure they're, they've kept themselves in tremendous shape and there'll, there'll be a training camp, 
but I do want to now I'm going to you know pay attention to watch that that speed of the game a little more and just kind of make comparisons. It should be interesting to watch these guys coming in. They're all professional athletes, but many of them didn't have access to ice rinks for a, a pretty good part of this uh, this hiatus that we've been on. So it, it should be I, again. We came back. We started at the top of the segment with it. Uh, Twenty four teams. I mean, it, it's going to be exciting. I, I don't think there's any way around it. But uh, we're, we're coming up on our time limit here for the day. So uh, I'm going to wind this down real quick. And uh, for all of you out there listening, we like uh, the keeper said earlier in the hour, we uh, appreciate everybody coming over from our radio audience here to our Thank podcast. You. Uh, we really do appreciate you. And we're all together looking forward to the hockey season. Uh, that being said, this is the captain. And I'm going to tell you to keep your head up out there. This is the keeper telling you to keep your glove up out there. And we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye-bye now.